Welcome to the teaching ministry at Magnolia's First. We hope the next few minutes will help you take your next steps on your faith journey. And we would love to help you take those next steps. Just head over to m1bc.org and fill out the connect form and a pastor will get in touch with you very soon. Or you can text us at 281-343-3033. Morning. Always like the feedback there. It's nice. Uh, so last week, uh, we introed a new series called Christmas Carols and the Christ Child. And if you remember last week, uh, my aim wasn't necessarily to talk about carols, but to talk about the subject of the carols being the Christ Child. And so today, uh, as we step into our first carol, I just want to remind you that our goal in this series is not to talk about Christmas carols, but to talk about the Christ child and how those carols, as we sing them and celebrate them in this time of year, is really a singing and celebration and praise of Jesus Christ and his coming into our world uh, for the purpose of our salvation, so that he could die for our sins and raise from the grave. And so I just want to make sure that that is emphasized before we move into even telling you what the carol is, because again, the point isn't the carol, the point isn't the season, the point is Christ. He is the reason for all of existence, right? Not just the season, but everything that exists currently and in all of history and will ever exist, he is the purpose for all things. So he must be the center. Praise God. So, this morning, as we jump into our first hymn, uh, or carol, uh, we are talking about O Little Town of Bethlehem. Uh, now, interestingly, I don't know if you know this, but um, I am actually not super familiar with a lot of carols. Uh, so I know this carol, but I wasn't very familiar with it, and so I had to really do some looking and, and searching uh, to get some understanding into the carol. And I do want to give a little background to the, to the writer of the carol, uh, but also I want to let you know that we are not going to take the carol and break it down line by line. What we're going to do is we're going to go to the scripture uh, that motivated this Christmas carol in the first place. Um, but just a little background, uh, the carol was written by a 19th century Puritan, uh, so he was in the 1800s, named Phillips Brooks. Uh, Brooks was a very large man. Uh, he was six foot six, 300 pounds. Uh, just for scale, I'm about 6'2 and, and 240, 250. Uh, Jeff, what are you, 6'4-ish? Yeah, so two inches taller than, I mean, that's a, that's a large, like I feel small compared to Jeff, uh, but this guy is two inches taller than him, right? So it's like, it's like Kevin Hart next to, to Shaq. Uh, it's, it's obnoxious. So, He's a very large man, uh, and at about 30 years old, 1865, he visited the Holy Land. He went to Israel, uh, did sort of a tour uh, of Jerusalem, and while there, was motivated to write a hymn for children to sing. Now, if some of you are like, that's fantastic, Daniel, we're going to use a, a kid's carol. You have to remember, children's hymns in the 1800s are vastly different from what our kids sing today. Uh, there is a lot more theology and richness and depth inside of what they sang 150 years ago in comparison to now, sadly. But it is what it is. Uh, so what he did is he wrote basically a five-stanza poem 
that he then gave to a guy named Lewis Redner, and Redner then made it into the song, which he struggled a lot to write the hymn, but he ended up writing the hymn that we now, uh, nearly 200 years later, are still using during Christmas to celebrate the birth of our Messiah. So I think that's really interesting backstory, and obviously I'm excited that he was excited to write this carol, because in all honesty, when I first saw A Little Town of Bethlehem, I thought, where am I, I going to go with that? You know, it's Bethlehem. Uh, but I, I went to Micah 5.2, uh, which is the origin verse, uh, prophecy, that this hymn was written off of. So it wasn't, I, I need you to keep in mind, Micah would have prophesied this roughly 700 B.C., so about 700 years before Christ was even born, Micah would have uh, written this prophecy. So when Phillips wrote this hymn, he wasn't sitting there 1,800 years after Jesus and decided, I should write about Bethlehem, right? Like, Jesus was born there, sounds significant. Uh, This has been something that has been talked about for millennia, before the, the birth of Christ even happened. There was significance for Bethlehem that God had promised. So uh, Micah 5.2 is the verse that we're going to sit on with a lot of other verses everywhere. But Micah 5.2 is the verse we're really going to sit on today. And in it, the prophet says this. He says, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, are only a small village among the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel will come from you, one whose origins are from the distant past. Now, In the Old Testament, there are a lot, a lot, a lot of prophecies of the birth of Jesus Christ, and those are amongst a lot, a lot, a lot of prophecies of the return of Jesus Christ, right? Uh, But this particular verse was one that the first century Jews, so the people alive during the time of Jesus, would have known very well and were expecting. Uh, If you remember correctly, in Matthew chapter 2, when, when Christ is born, King Herod is alarmed at the fact that the king of Israel has been born, even though he doesn't really understand what that's going to mean. So he summons wise men in to try and understand the location uh, where he might find the Christ child because, as he said he wanted to worship him, his goal was to kill him. Uh, and as we read it, Matthew chapter, Matthew chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, this is what it says. It says, King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said. For this is what the prophet wrote, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of, of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Now, if you notice, what did the wise men do? A direct quote from Micah 5.2 in order to answer Herod. So this was well known amongst the people. But even into Jesus' earthly ministry, uh, he had been teaching, in John chapter 7, he had been teaching for some time now, performing miracles, all kinds of various things, and people are really starting to question the identity of this guy, right? Because he's making some pretty big claims, as to who he is. And so they're wondering, he's either a prophet, he's a lunatic, or he's the Messiah. 
right? We don't know which, but he's one of them. And so a debate arises in John chapter 7, verses 40 through 42. It said, when the crowds heard him say this, some of them declared, surely this man is the prophet we've been expecting. Others said he's the Messiah. Still others said, but he can't be. Will the Messiah come from Galilee? For the scriptures clearly state that the Messiah will be born of the royal line of David in Bethlehem, the village where King David was born. So this was well known. It was, it was expected that when Christ would come, the city from which he would be born, not necessarily raised, but born, would be the city of Bethlehem. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look at this one verse, Micah 5, 2, and I, I, like I said, I just want to sit on that verse. I don't do this often. I don't know if I've actually done this in this group, uh, but I want to sit with this one verse, and I want to ask three questions to it, uh, or look at three things, three points. I want to look at the name, the description, and the promise. The name, the description, and the promise. And my hope is as we break those three things down, your heart will be provoked to worship for the person of God through Jesus Christ. That's the mission. So the name, Bethlehem Aphrathah, is how Micah words it. Bethlehem Aphrathah. Now those are sort of synonymous. They don't mean the same thing, but they're sort of synonymous. The Jews would have known Bethlehem as also Aphrathah. Uh, and it was a city and a name very well loved for the Jews in that time. Uh, but the name, the, the name Bethlehem, now if you know me, you know that I'm a little bit of a word geek. I like to know the meaning to things. Uh, Bethlehem means house of bread. House of bread, which to some of you may sound very insignificant, and my goal is to make it very significant. Uh, and then Aphrathah means fruitfulness or abundance. Now those are both incredibly significant when we think about who is being born in Bethlehem. <clears throat> Who's being promised? If you remember correctly, one of the references that Jesus gave to himself, essentially, is that he is the bread of life. The bread of life. Now, in John chapter 6, Jesus has already, he's, he's already done miracles at this point. He's fed the 5,000, uh, and he's got a following of Jews basically coming after him, kind of prodding him with questions, trying to figure out who he is. And <clears throat> he's, again, making these statements as to his identity, and they begin to basically ask questions based on that where they say something along the lines of, okay, well, you're claiming to be uh, this ruler, this, this Messiah, right? Well, Moses, who was our previous leader, he said one would come after him who would be like him. Well, Moses fed us manna in the desert. So what are you going to do? Right? And if you remember the story of the manna, uh, as Israel was coming out of Egypt and into the promised land, uh, the whole time they're in travel, when they would go to bed at night, dew would come down from heaven, and as it settled on the ground, it would become uh, sort of a grainy, uh, um, flavory, like a bakery, like a baked good, uh, but they would make it and in, in knead bread cakes out of it, and they would eat it. The manna, they would make it into, into sort of bread, kind of a pastry. So they're saying, hey, when Moses was leading us, God brought down manna from heaven. What do you have, Jesus? This is what it says in John chapter 6. 
Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Moses did not give you the bread of heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, give us that bread every day. Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Now, do you, do you, you see what he's saying? He's saying, yeah, no. Through Moses, manna came down from heaven, but that's not the real bread of life. That sustained him in the wilderness, but that's temporary. That's temporary satisfaction. I'm the true manna that came down from heaven. I didn't just come down from the sky, but I came down from my throne in heaven. In the flesh, and I lay down my body to give you life. You see, Jesus is, he says, you're right about the manna, but you need to understand something about it. The manna is just a type, it's a foreshadow of the one who is to come. Because Jesus is the true bread of life, who would be born in Bethlehem, meaning the house of bread. But it also means fruitfulness. And if you know anything about the Christian faith, you have to know that before the good news is the bad news, right? That God calls us to a standard that we cannot attain. He calls us to godliness, and we fall horribly short of it. But we need to bear his fruit. We need to bring him glory, but instead we only bring blasphemy to his name. And if you remember what Jesus taught in John chapter 15 when he said that he's the vine and we're the branches, that if we abide in him and he abides in us, we will bear much fruit, but apart from him we can do nothing. Nothing. So Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, and now for that word Aphrathah, that was the old name of the place which the Jews retained and loved. The meaning of it is fruitfulness or abundance. Good it is that Jesus was born in the house of fruitfulness. For where comes my fruitfulness and your fruitfulness, my brothers and sisters, but from Bethlehem? Our poor barren hearts never produced one fruit or flower till they were watered with the Savior's blood. Do you see the significance simply in the name? And you do understand. Bethlehem was named Bethlehem long before the time of Christ. Because God had already known from, from eternity past that his plan, right, according to the book of Acts, Jesus was destined for that death. According to Revelation, he was a lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world. That even in the, in the prophecy that God would send the Messiah to be born in Bethlehem, God is screaming, from this town will come your fruitfulness. From this town will come the bread of life. He's been pointing us to it all along. The name of the city holds great significance, but the description, the description of the city says something so beautiful as well to the character of God. 
He says only a small village among the people of Judah. Now, I don't know if you know this, but there's uh, a lot of significance in that the Lord uses things that we would often not expect, right? We would often not expect it. Uh, and I, I, I like to, uh, I, I praise God for that fact. Now, I'm not, I'm not bragging on this. Uh, if I could boast in anything, let me boast in the Lord here. Uh, I, when I graduated high school, it's no exaggeration, I graduated with a 1.33 GPA and it took me five years to do it. Five years for a 1.33 GPA. Uh, I was not what you would call intelligent by any means. And honestly, I would still say I'm not very intelligent. But when I was 23 years old and I was saved, one thing that I noted happened very quickly is I could understand and put connection with this book so easily, right? People are like, you must be so disciplined. I'm like, I'm really not. <laughs> I'm really not. But you see what God did? It's like he took my weakest element and he uses it for his glory so that when I stand up here, my intellect is not praised, but God's power is. God chose a small city, a small village like Bethlehem. It's funny, the Apostle Paul understood this, and it's interesting, all throughout Scripture you see this. God always uses circumstances that seem impossible and people that seem tiny, right? I mean, you have a few exceptions. The Apostle Paul was a very prestigious and powerful man when converted, but what's interesting is then he became very unprestigious and he gave up all his power, Funny how God will work that oppositely. But Paul was familiar. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29, Paul says this to the Corinthian believers. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they're wise. He chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. Praise God that he takes the small things to bring glory to his name. If you remember correctly, Bethlehem is also the city of David. Do you remember the anointing of David? Right? Saul was king over Israel, and he rejected the Lord's commandments, and he wanted glory for himself. And so uh, God spoke to the prophet Samuel, and he said, hey, uh, Saul, I'm rejecting him. We're bringing a new guy in, so I want you to go to the house of Jesse, and I'm going to show you who to anoint to be the next king of my people Israel. He'll be a man after my own heart. And if you remember, Samuel shows up to the house of Jesse, and all the boys, all the sons of Jesse line up except one who is the youngest little ruddy boy who's out there uh, shepherding the sheep right now. They didn't even bring him. That's how much expectation there was on that guy. But then Samuel, the kids line up, Samuel looks at the oldest and he goes, 
I know that's him, God. Tall, handsome, built. What does God say to him? 1 Samuel 16, 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't judge by his appearance or height, for I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way that we see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, I do want to take that and I want to apply it one step more. Uh, because here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to do that thing where I'm like, and God can use you too. He can. And maybe he'll use you to do something enormous. And maybe he won't. That shouldn't be the point. Right? If, you, if, if your existence and this teaching is based on you getting to do something big, then I think you think you're God, not him. Right? It shouldn't be about whether we get to do big things. It should be about we get to know God. But let's remember for a second, who were you when Christ bled? Romans 5 says you were enemies of God. Enemies of God. You were ungodly, a sinner. Romans 8, 7 says you were hostile toward him. And yet, while you were those things, Christ died for you. Why? So, thank you. <laughs> Does that get interaction? I like that. You were alienated from the family of God. But by Christ, you've been brought in. You've been adopted. You've been reconciled. You've been justified. But at one time, you were not. And in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul likes to remind us of that. He says, hey, remember where you come from, kid. You were nothing special in God's eyes, but he loved you anyways. Praise God. The name is significant. The description of the city, significant. The promise to the city. The promise to the city is that a ruler whose origins from distant past would come from it. Now, more literally, it would say a ruler from the days of eternity. From the days of eternity. Now, I like that a little bit more. I think it uh, suits the Hebrew better, uh, but I think it also suits the deity of Christ a little bit better. That he is God in the flesh. He, he wasn't born at one point uh, God didn't create Jesus, and then later on, he was born as a man. Jesus, from what we read in Scripture, has existed for all of eternity with God the Father and God the Spirit. They are all equally God. And he would be born in the city of Bethlehem. This is not the beginning of the ruler. He had been ruling forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. But in order to bring redemption to mankind, he voluntarily stepped into his own creation. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 says this, In the beginning was the Word, I'm sorry, let me start that over. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. 
God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. In the beginning was the word, and then John personifies the word as a he, being one who is God, but also is with God. Distinct from the Father, yet one with him. Some of you are like, that's confusing. I agree. They've been trying to explain the Trinity for 2,000 years. Still can't do it perfectly. What does this indicate for us? What indicates is eternality. That Jesus Christ had no beginning and he will have no end. He has been existing from, the, from before the beginning of time. Now that may seem like, eh. But I'm just saying, listen, if you're one of those people that you're like, I just get bored with theology, just go ahead and ponder that for the rest of your life. I promise it's enough food for your soul to try and comprehend something that has no beginning. All we know is beginnings and ends. But if he's eternal, there's something else you have to understand about him as well. He's completely self-sufficient. He needs nothing outside of himself to be existing. He needs nothing outside of himself to be happy. He needs nothing outside of himself to feel loved, which would tell us something also very significant. Significance the word of the day. He had no reason to create anything. He didn't need anything. Heaven wasn't empty before. He wasn't up there lonely, needing compliments. He was existing in perfect, eternal harmony, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in a union of love that none of us can comprehend in any way, and then out of sheer grace, he created. Why? So that he could lavish on his creation, his love and his glory, to be enjoyed and to be celebrated. He was born in Bethlehem. The eternally existing, self-sustaining creator of all things, born in Bethlehem, the small village, In this one verse, we're told so much about the person of God in Jesus Christ. One of my favorite passages when I share the gospel, when I share the good news, is Philippians chapter two, verses five through eight. It's one of my absolute favorites. And the reason is because what we learn about Jesus, right? Uh, Philippians chapter two, Paul says that though he was in equality with God, he did not consider that a privilege to be grasped, right? Like, I remember being an intern here. Jeff actually hired me 2013, January. I was an intern here uh, and in the youth ministry, and I remember at that time there was no task too small, right? There wasn't. Man, if somebody spilled, we're in the middle of youth night, somebody spills coffee, I got the mop. I'm mopping it up, you know? I'm, I'm happy to do it. And it's funny, because I remember back then, I was like, I will never leave this place of, of lowliness, right? 
Then you get ordained a pastor. And you're walking over here on a Sunday morning, there's a piece of paper on the ground. You're like, not my job. (laughs) It's ridiculous, isn't it? It's ridiculous. And it blows my mind even more that Jesus, far more superior than a student pastor, right? In case you didn't know, we we don't have a high ranking. (laughs) Far more superior than a student pastor in equality with God. And he didn't consider that a privilege to be grasped. But what does he do? It says that he set aside the divine privileges. He didn't empty himself of his godness, but he set aside those privileges that he once had in order to come down as a man. Obedient to the law, obedient to the Father, obedient to the point of death, but not just any death. Scripture says death on a cross, hanged on a tree. To us, we go, "Eh." but to a Hebrew, that meant everything. Because Deuteronomy chapter 21, Hebrew law says if any man's hanged on a tree, he's cursed by God. The eternal one completely self-sufficient, in need of nothing outside of himself, came down to be like one of us, to live a life we never could, to die a death that we deserve. Paul says in Galatians 3.13 that Christ Jesus saved us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. You understand that little baby born in Bethlehem It's not just a cute story. It's the eternal king of glory, born in bodily form to bear the sins of the world under the wrath of God, to conquer death, to conquer sin, to conquer the grave, to save his people from the tyranny of sin, from the fear of death, so that we could enter into glory forever. It's no cute story. It's the greatest story ever told, greater than any Marvel hero greater than anything DC could ever put out. This is a story that every other story is built off of, the narrative that runs throughout all of history. Every myth and every legend longing for a redeemer, and we have him. Praise God. So what do we do with this? Well, I would say if I could match the three points Number one, I would reject the bread of this world and I would celebrate Christ. Uh, there's a guy that I like to listen to. Uh, he's a Lutheran minister. He, uh, he does a song called The Devil's Bread. And in it, he explains uh, Matthew chapter four, how Jesus, son of God, fasted 40 days, 40 nights, becomes hungry, and the first thing Satan does is he comes along and he says, hey, don't you just deserve to be fed? Where's your father right now, oh son of God? You could turn this into bread right now and eat. To make the long story short, Jesus' rebuttal ultimately was, my father's got me. 
So at the end of the song, he basically poses a question. Would you rather be fathered or would you rather just be fed? What are you looking for to sustain you in this life? What are you depending on to give you value and purpose? Where are you finding your significance? If it's not in Christ, it's the bread of this world. It will rot in your gut. Secondly, I would strongly encourage you to embrace your weaknesses. I have a guy I went to high school with. He's a a non-believer. A few years ago on Facebook, he had posted uh, essentially that he had been helping out. He's a, he's, a, he's a musician, so he'd been helping out in a church scene, I guess, uh, with a worship group. And uh, he said, it's funny because what I find is that people in bars are far more transparent than people in the churches. I said, man, you're not wrong. And I messaged him privately. And I just said, you know, I, I, think, I think you're right in what you said, but I think, there's, I think you're not understanding the reason. It's not because we want to be fake. It's because we lose sight of the, what I would argue one of the most important doctrines in all of Christianity was justification. That I've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Jesus Christ alone, which means I don't need to impress you. I've got the approval of the only one that matters. And if I believe that, I can be so utterly transparent with you that it does not matter. I think we need to learn to embrace our weaknesses a little bit better, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, that we would embrace our weaknesses so that Christ's power would be known. So you've got to beg the question, are you going to stand on the fact that Christ qualified you, or are you going to keep trying to qualify yourself? You've got the option for freedom, to take the mask off, to quit wearing the facade, and rest in Christ and his perfection on your behalf. Lastly, don't ever, 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 ever forget the perfect quality of that blood shed on Calvary. I hear so many people that they think their sins are just too big. And do you understand the biggest sin you're committing is degrading the blood of Jesus Christ shed on that cross for your sins? There is no other means under heaven for salvation but Christ and Christ alone. Do you trust in that perfect blood? Do you understand the quality of what was poured out? If you do, you understand there's no sin too big. And you understand that in John chapter 14, Jesus said there's one sin in the end for which mankind will be judged for, and it's their unbelief. It's their unbelief. Praise God for that bloodshed, that perfect blood of that spotless lamb, Jesus Christ. I'm gonna pray. Uh, Dalton is gonna come back up. He's gonna lead us. Uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna sing. I know some of you are like, we didn't do a little down to Bethlehem. We we're fixing to. <laughs> but we wanted to do it after for one simple reason. To expound on the riches of that foundational verse for which the carol was written in hopes that when you see the lyrics on the screen, your heart is filled with an understanding and a knowledge of the glory of Jesus Christ and that that would provoke worship because he's worthy of it.
This isn't just words on a screen. This is praise to our Savior, who is currently risen and seated at the right hand of God. So I want to pray, and I would hope that even if you don't know the lyrics of the song, you would just sit and look at the screen and be taken by your king. Father, thank you. Thank you for every single type, every foreshadow, every symbol, every sign, everything that has shown us Christ from the beginning of time even until now. Thank you for his blood. Thank you for your grace, your love, your mercy. Thank you for your justice. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for this time of year that reminds us of that. Thank you for your sovereignty, your wisdom, for all that you are, for your holiness that will leave us in awe for all of eternity. I pray our hearts are filled with worship and our lips would sing your praises. All for your name's sake. Amen.